Welcome to Trial Tested, a podcast by the American College of Trial Lawyers. Trial Tested is a discussion about life and law created to elevate and inspire trial attorneys. I'm Dave Thomas, and I'll be your host today. Hello, everyone, and welcome back for another episode of Trial Tested. I'm Dave Thomas, a fellow from Columbus, Ohio. It's my great pleasure to introduce all of you to Brian Gover, a fellow from Toronto. Brian is a partner at Stockwoods LP. He originally attended the University of Western Ontario, where he earned a Bachelor of Arts in History in 1978. He liked it so much, he stayed and earned a Bachelor of Laws, finishing that program in 1981 at the University of Western Ontario. Following his legal education, he began to work at the Ontario Ministry of the Attorney General, specifically for the Crown Law Office as a criminal attorney, where he served from 1983 to 1994. During that period, he also served as an executive legal officer for the Superior Court of Justice, formerly known as the Ontario Court in the General Division. He has been a partner at Stockwoods since May of 1994. Brian, welcome. Thank you, Dave. I'm glad to be here. Thank you so much. We're really looking forward to hearing about your experiences and some of the really unique representations you've had and service you've provided in Canada. But I want to begin by asking you a little bit about your background. What led you to a legal career? And tell us some things about your your professional trajectory that we might not know. I'm one of those people who was encouraged by a parent to become a lawyer. My father was a frustrated lawyer. There was a time before the Second World War in Canada when you could serve what was basically a long apprenticeship and uh, end up a lawyer. He had started that before enlisting in World War II, returned after the war and didn't go back to it and wanted one of his children to do it. I wanted to be a journalist. <laughs> I grew up in the era of, the, of Woodward and Bernstein and uh, crusading investigative journalists. And uh, But I said I'd give the law five years and uh, I've been a lawyer now for 40 years, Dave. And it's my understanding that you did not grow up in Toronto, but you actually grew up in a more rural part of Canada. And I think some of our listeners might be interested in hearing what the transition was like from growing up in a smaller community to uh, a really big metropolis like Toronto. Well, that was a result of my father's career. He was a federal public servant. He resisted transfers outside Ontario, but we lived in various places in Ontario. I had lived in a dozen houses by the time I left to go to college. And among those places were an Indian reserve. We now call them First Nations in Canada. That was near Lake Huron, near Southampton, Ontario, and four important years in Geraldton, Ontario, which is northeast of Thunder Bay, so north of Lake Superior. Okay, great. More on the First Nations contact in a minute, but I'd really appreciate it if you tell our listeners a little bit about your career in public service before you joined Stockwoods, the kind of work you did with the Ontario Ministry, the Attorney General, and also with the Superior Court of Justice in Toronto. Yes, I was at a head office unit of the Attorney General's Ministry called the Crown Law Office Criminal. And it is an office that specializes in representing the Crown, so the prosecution, in appeals to the Court of Appeal and the Supreme Court of Canada, as well as undertaking special prosecutions. It was a dream job for me, and I worked with some tremendous lawyers there at an early stage, people who went on to judicial careers, people who went on to be eminent counsel, 
And uh, it was a great learning experience. I described it at one point as a state-sponsored Master of Laws degree in criminal law. So a, a wonderful experience, made all the more so by the legal developments that were happening in Canada at the time. We have had an entrenched Bill of Rights since 1982, the Charter of Rights. It was influenced in large measure by the American approach to constitutional law, but also by the British approach. And we've gone a different way than Great Britain has in that respect. And as of 1982, so about a year before I was called to the bar, before I was qualified to practice, there was this brand new ground-shaking development in Canadian law and impacting at first, of course, criminal law. So I was at the Crown Law Office Criminal, which is a leading office on the prosecution side in Canada at a critically important time. I was very lucky to have been there because we were arguing some matters which were really a first impression, trying to apply the American law to the extent we could. And then, of course, learning that we had our own approach uh, to the law, which in some ways is similar, but in other ways is very different from American constitutional law. So a very interesting time to be a young prosecutor learning from others. And of course, the courts were becoming stronger and stronger as well. The Court of Appeal and Supreme Court of Canada were remarkable places to appear then. And once I got over the sheer terror involved in that, and you've mentioned my secondment, I was recruited along the way to be executive legal officer to the, what is now called the Superior Court of Justice. It was right after court reform when two of the federally appointed courts that are trial courts in Ontario were merged, the county and district courts on one hand and the High Court of Justice on the other, creating a very large superior court with 300 to 400 judges. And I was asked to assist the in the operation of the court by the Chief Justice, which was an honor and a, a very interesting time to be working with the court. I bet that's, it's really incredible to be working in such historic times. And it's one of those great opportunities we get as lawyers sometimes. I wonder if you could tell us, especially for the benefit of our younger listeners, how you first tied your teeth as a trial lawyer in the Crown Law Office? What kinds of cases did you try and what was that experience like? It's special prosecution mandate included offenses against the administration of justice. So prosecuting, I prosecuted another prosecutor. I prosecuted police officers, anything related to the administration of justice. Also commercial crime cases, so complex fraud cases. And along the way, I volunteered to assist with other cases. So I prosecuted a homicide case. I also had an interest in Aboriginal law, one topic that I know that you and I will come back to, Dave, and I represented the Crown in a number of early cases under Section 35 of the Constitution Act dealing with Aboriginal and treaty rights. Let's talk about Aboriginal law next, because I know that's going to be a lot of, there's going to be a lot of interest in that among our listeners. If you could, it, I know that you are involved in some really critical litigation in Ontario involving First Nations and treaty rights. Would you please uh, tell our listeners what that engagement is about and what the significance of it is? Yes, I'd be happy to. Canada, of course, has existed since 1867 when Confederation occurred. 
some of the treaties with which we are concerned predate Confederation. And the treaty that the case I'm involved in currently relates to is the Robinson Superior Treaty of 1850. So it's a treaty entered into by the British Imperial Crown. And what's interesting about it is at the time, the British Imperial Crown was both strapped for cash and inclined to make the colonies pay for themselves. The result was that the annuities, which were the typical means of compensating the First Nations people for giving up their territory, the annuities were remarkably low, even for then, $1.60 per person per year. But there was an augmentation clause, which indicated that if and when resources were found in the treaty territory, then the treaty would be augmented. There was a collective and an individual aspect to the annuity. The collective aspect was paid only once in 1850 and never revisited. The individual annuities were revisited in 1875 and haven't been revisited since. And the $1.60 amount that was paid to the individual members of the bands that signed the treaty in 1850 was increased to $4 then. So you can imagine what's happened in the meantime, Dave. Northern Ontario is rich with natural resources. There is forestry, but there is mineral extraction. Mineral extraction, including precious metals, and also now what's really of interest are metals of more strategic interest as we think about, for example, electric vehicles. In the, the ensuing 173 years, billions and billions of dollars of resource-related value have been extracted from the territory, and the First Nations people have not been properly compensated. We're now in the damages phase of that trial. It began in January, and we'll complete the evidence in June of 2023. We'll have the closing arguments in September of 2023, and the Evidence has included on our side a Nobel Prize winning economist as our first witness, Joseph Stiglitz, former chief economist for the World Bank, and really a remarkable person who, together with the individual who, another expert who prepared a report applying the principles that Professor Stiglitz said ought to be applied, has come up with the numbers. So it's a, really a case that's worth billions of dollars dealing with historic wrongs where we have generations of our First Nations people who have been shortchanged by initially the British Imperial Crown and since 1867 by our government. And I'm going to say that our government deserves an asterisk because there's an allocation issue as to whether the annuities and the damages really ought to be paid by the government of Canada as the successor to the British Imperial Crown, or the province of Ontario. And the province of Ontario reaps most of the benefits of the resources, whereas historically it's been the government of Canada which pays the annuities and is responsible as the principal crown actor in relation to treaties. I understand that there was some pretty compelling testimony from different persons, from tribes who talked about what I'll call the damages component of this and the effect of these treaty violations over time. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about that? 
I can, and most starkly, there was an elder named Raymond Goodchild who described growing up in a community adjacent to his First Nation, and his First Nation was called Pace Platte, and he grew up in a place called Rossport, and nearby there was a company town owned by Kimberly Clark, and of course it, it was a place with a paper mill that produced Kleenex. So close by there was a community with all of the all of the comforts of a middle class standard of life, living, and uh, on the other hand, the evidence of Mr. Goodchild was so striking that he grew up on a, in a tar paper shack, sleeping on the floor covered by coats, constantly in a state of hunger, that his family would walk along the highway and uh, stop at uh, uh, a local picnic stop along the highway and go through the garbage looking for food. When meanwhile, there was that community, Terrace Bay, so close with people living a completely different standard of living. And living in a different way. His evidence about seeing someone open a refrigerator for the first time was really striking. And you couldn't help but be on the verge of tears understanding what he had survived in terms of racism and also in terms of the deprivation that First Nations people in this area have suffered. It's a really incredible story. I encourage all of our listeners to to look into this more. I Brian, I have to ask, I'm an attorney, and I have to wonder, how did you get involved in this and what was necessary to initiate litigation over a wrong that, while it's still happening, goes back 173 years? What was all that like? So uh, it actually goes back to the time when I was with the Crown, when I was on the other side of cases like that. The case was referred to me by someone who might opposed someone who himself is a First Nations person. And one of the great things I think that can ever happen to a lawyer is to have your opponent refer a case to you and entrust a valued client to you. And he did that having won the liability stage on behalf of the Robinson-Huron plaintiffs. The two treaties had virtually identical terms, were negotiated in the same week, uh, by the same British Imperial Crown actors, but obviously with the First Nations people from, on one hand, the Lake Huron area and the other, the Lake Superior area. So he referred it to me because of a conflict that had emerged with one of his valued clients, and then six others asked us to act for them, and and here we are. I couldn't agree more that when a matter is referred by opposing counsel, that is, that's one of the highest accolades you can receive as a lawyer. Um, I want to move on and ask you about your role with commissions of inquiry in Canada. And first of all, for the benefit of our listeners in the United States and elsewhere who maybe are not familiar with a commission of inquiry under the Canadian legal system, could you tell us a little bit about what that is? I can. Commissions of inquiry are really an import from the British system. They actually have their roots in more of a French or inquisitorial kind of process, so more of a civil process. And you need to keep that in mind throughout because commission counsel effectively take over your witness in most instances and lead the evidence, at least as we think of the direct evidence 
at the inquiry. The two purposes of a commission of inquiry are, first of all, to educate the public about some issue, and it typically involves some issue of pressing public concern. And the other one is to advise the executive branch of government. And various balances have been achieved in trying to reconcile those two purposes. But in Canada, we've been heavy users of commissions of inquiry, sometimes called royal commissions, but not in the last 50 years or so have they been called royal commissions. And governments use them to inform public policy, to satisfy the public that those issues of pressing public concern are being dealt with. And remarkably, most recently, the Commission of Inquiry I was involved in was necessary because the statute required it. The statute indicated that whenever an emergency was declared under the Emergencies Act, a Commission of Inquiry had to ensue and that it had to report within one year. And if my understanding is correct, the particular emergency that was concerned that came to the attention of your prime minister and eventually many other people involved some very upset truck drivers. Is that right? It did. Now, the truck drivers were a component of the protest, but certainly a visible component and one which was capable of blocking border crossings, like the Ambassador Bridge between Detroit and Windsor, for example, which accounts for a surprising percentage of the trade between Canada and the United States. And when you say that it came to the attention of the Prime Minister, of course, it occupied Wellington Street, which is the street between the Prime Minister's office and the Parliament buildings in Ottawa. And his own office was a focal point of the protest. And these protests were happening all over Canada, and we had similar protests in the United States in, I think, 2020 and 2021. Isn't that right? That's right. And there were similar protests even in Europe with the yellow jackets in in France. So it was movement and dissatisfaction with the COVID-19 vaccination mandates would be described, I think, as the most immediate precipitating cause. And what had happened was for truckers entering Canada from the U.S., they had to show that they had been vaccinated. Returning truckers, in some instances, Canadians, would have to prove they were vaccinated. Certainly, most of them were by then. That was a rule that came into effect January 15, 2022. It had been announced a couple of months earlier. Some 90% of truckers or so had been vaccinated, but it became a rallying point or issue for people who were dissatisfied with COVID-19 mandates generally, who were dissatisfied with government generally. It became a focal point for people from certain areas of Canada who were alienated from the federal government, and it therefore took on this much broader scope than a protest about a vaccination mandate. So the people of Canada and the people of the United States really jealously guard and protect their right to express their views, political discontent and otherwise. So we know that's a pillar of of the democratic values of both countries. But did there come a point where that expression 
ran into concerns about public safety and other things that caused the government to maybe engage in more significant activity. That's exactly what arose and what the commissioner, Justice Rouleau, held to have been the case. The protest, especially as it related to Ottawa, included operating heavy rigs in downtown Ottawa. They, when I say operating, they were running. In many instances, they had their, their wheels removed. So they were effectively a big blockade. Uh, there was horn hawking all night long. It, this was in the center town area of Ottawa, which is, of course, where the parliament buildings are, where the prime minister's office is, but also a, a residential area. There was concern about what might happen in the event of a clash between the counter-protesters, who were also in evidence, and the protesters. There was concern about the elements that were being attracted by the protest as it took place across the country, as it took place at the British Columbia-Washington border, as it took place at the Alberta-Montana border, as it took place at the Ontario-Michigan border, and the border between Quebec and, and New England states, including New York. So concern about that and a, a real issue about safety of the police officers who were policing the protests and a concern as well about the economic harm because it came at a time when Canada needed to prove that it was a reliable trading partner, especially with our main ally and trading partner, the United States. So what did the government do? What was the what was done to address those concerns? The government and really the federal cabinet declared a public order emergency on February 14th of 2022 and the declaration was in place for 9 days until February 23rd. The provisions of the declaration allowed for freezing of bank accounts if people were participating in the protest. And the idea there, I think it's obvious what the objective was. It was to ensure that money wouldn't be spent to support the protest. Donations, by the way, were made from various sources. There were millions of dollars in accounts that were frozen. There was a GoFundMe campaign, for example. And the funds were coming from Canada and the U.S. and Britain and elsewhere. There were calls by the way, this doesn't relate to the, this relates to why an emergency was declared, but the 911 switchboard in Ottawa was overwhelmed by calls from Putnam County, Ohio. So this was more than a Canadian issue, Dave. <laughs> and I don't know how far you are from Putnam County, but I thought you'd be interested in that. I am in Putnam County. There are plenty of politically concerned people, but I'm surprised they were able to crash a phone system. <laughs> it's a pretty, it's a pretty rural county. There were steps taken to deal with assembly. People were not permitted to attend in certain places that were designated, including the area that Parliament Hill encompasses. Uh, and people were prohibited from entering into Canada for the purpose of taking part in the protests. And so how does a commission get convened and what was your role? That commission in particular was extraordinary in that it was required by statute. My role was as, together with lawyers from the Department of Justice and uh, members of my firm in representing the Attorney General of Canada, I was responsible for the evidence of the Prime Minister and the Prime Minister's office 
which included his chief of staff, his deputy chief of staff, and a key policy advisor. And the prime minister testified on the last day of the hearings, which was November 25th, 2022. For the benefit of our listeners, when first, how unusual or extraordinary is it for a sitting prime minister to testify in a proceeding like this? It is exceptional. The prime minister would not regularly testify before a parliamentary committee, for example. So to have a prime minister testify at a commission of inquiry, unique in my experience. Nonetheless, and I think very much to his credit, the prime minister from the outset recognized that he would be an important witness because the decision was made by cabinet that on what was called an ad referendum basis. So it had delegated the task of determining whether to declare the emergency to the prime minister. As a matter of Canadian legal history, it was very interesting because the Emergencies Act was enacted because it because of a need to replace its predecessor, which was the War Measures Act. The War Measures Act was last invoked in October 1970 by our current Prime Minister's father, Pierre Elliott Trudeau, in response to the October crisis when, for example, the British Trade Commissioner and Provincial Cabinet Minister from Quebec were kidnapped. The Provincial Cabinet Minister was actually murdered. The Trade Commissioner was released unharmed. But the War Measures Act really called for martial law, and its invocation in October 1970 cast a long shadow, which resulted in the enactment 18 years later of the Emergencies Act, which was designed to provide for a, I mentioned the Charter of Rights earlier, a charter-compliant and time-limited declaration of an emergency with carefully considered measures that would be focused on the issues that the particular emergency posed. So to have acted for our Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau, on something that was as important as that and something that I know he was reluctant to do because of that history was really a remarkable aspect of my professional work. It, so is this literally a situation where you as the Commission Council are asking Prime Minister Trudeau questions and what happened next? And is it that kind of an exchange that you're having? I was not Commission Council. I was really the Prime Minister's lawyer. Okay. Uh, and it's one of those situations I've described earlier where it's an inquisitorial process. You hand over your witness having prepared her or him to commission counsel. It's a collaborative process. You're expected to fully cooperate with the commissioner and commission counsel. And so my role there was to, to object to questions from time to time when asked by I didn't object to any by commission counsel, but I did to some of the parties withstanding at the inquiry and to engage in a redirect of the prime minister. I won't ask you to comment on any client, specifically including your prime minister. I will say that in my own law practice, I've represented a number of elected officials, and there's a bit of a joke in the bar that I interact with that it's a very stressful when you allow an elected official client, you let them off the leash after questions. So that's just my own feeling about those kinds of situations. But of course, I, I don't know your prime minister. So let me ask you about 
about other commissions you did in, first of all, what was the outcome of this? The prime minister testifies, this is historic, this, or these are historic times. What, how did it go? And what was the, the sort of the significance of the conclusion? of it? Now, as I mentioned, that inquiry was required to report within a year. It reported on February 17th, 2023, and it held that while it was a close call, invocation of the emergency powers was appropriate in that instance, and that the measures that were brought to bear were appropriate to the emergency that the government was confronted with. I would say that the government's decision to declare a public order emergency was vindicated in that situation. It's, it sounds like a very good outcome for the prime minister and his administration. Yeah. And I'm happy to talk about some of other public inquiries I've been involved in as commission counsel. I was one of the commission counsel in my first experience was in the Walkerton inquiry, which dealt with a tainted municipal water supply in Walkerton, a community in southwestern Ontario. The water was contaminated by E. coli 0157H7. It was being underchlorinated by the operators so that the disinfectant was not working. About 3,000 people became ill, some with lasting effects like hemolytic uremic syndrome, and seven died. And it was a case in which we examined the approach of the provincial government of the day, which had moved toward a red tape reduction deregulation position and how it compromised the safety of the water system in Walkerton. And that then became the a sort of a springboard as I became one of the commission counsel in the Arar Commission, which inquired into treatment of Maher Arar, a Canadian, but a, a dual citizen, Syrian and Canadian, who was rendered by the U.S. back to Syria via Jordan, where he was found to have been tortured and then ultimately returned to Canada. And the inquiry there was into the complicity of Canadian officials in his rendition and treatment. Is that, that last matter, is that one where many of the, the autopsies that were called into question, the people, the children who died, because we're talking pediatric forensic pathology, they were Aboriginal also? Is that, am I right about that? Some were Aboriginal. Yes, that, that's absolutely right. And because most of those cases were jury trials, the, uh, there wasn't much in the way of, of judicial decisions that identify problems with the work of that particular pathologist. So when I was getting ready for this, an area of Ontario called Thunder Bay kept coming up. And so can you tell our listeners who aren't familiar with that part of Ontario, what is Thunder Bay and what's your connection to that area? Because it seems to keep popping up when I read about Brian Gover. <laughs> Thunder Bay is a city on Lake Superior, which is a regional city, a regional center really a magnet for communities in Northwestern Ontario in particular. And when I say communities, I include remote communities that you can only fly into and out of. And Thunder Bay would be the place where people would go on that first flight out. Uh, it's a place with, of course, a, a large hospital. Right now, the police force has had a difficult history in dealing especially with First Nations people which has resulted in calls for its reorganization, calls for changes in its governance. And I've 
been involved in cases in Thunder Bay since the 1980s. One of those cases involving the administration of justice that I prosecuted was a jury trial in Thunder Bay against members of the vice squad back then. And more lately, I've been there on the First Nations case that I mentioned. In fact, the closing arguments are going to be heard in Thunder Bay as opposed to Sudbury, where we've been for the evidentiary phase of the trial. And why are the closing arguments in Thunder Bay, which is a much more remote location than, than Sudbury? Initially, the part of the trial I'm involved in now was to include both the Robinson-Huron plaintiffs and the Robinson-Superior plaintiffs. The Robinson-Huron plaintiffs entered into settlement discussions on the eve of the damages trial. So they are maintaining a watching brief, and they may not be there for the closing arguments in September. So we've actually been in Robinson-Huron territory for the evidentiary phase of the trial, and certainly the clients whom I represent are going to be glad that an important part of the trial will take place in their territory. And one of the issues, by the way, in that trial is that the seven First Nations I act for say that they didn't sign the treaty. They'd be maintaining an Aboriginal title claim to the territory. So they have a contingent interest in the outcome of that case while they pursue an Aboriginal title claim. Wow. Now that is interesting. Perhaps if we ever have an advanced level trial practice podcast, we can ask about the authentication of ancient documents when the signers are deceased and when there's a dispute about their authenticity. But I think that might be going a little bit far afield for our topics today. In addition to these matters of great public importance, such as First Nations litigation and the convoy commission inquiry, you've also developed something of a reputation for representing high-profile individuals who find themselves um, in a little bit of legal hot water. Do you care to, to comment on that? In the course of my career, I've acted for politicians. I've acted for police officers. And I act for judges from time to time. And currently, I act for a judge of the Supreme Court of Canada. And so with that in mind, I'm not going to ask you about that particular judge, but I do want to ask in general, would you share your experience with our listeners on how do you as an attorney navigate these very high profile matters of national attention, either because the significance of the issues or because of the public's interest in the person? For example, when you receive calls from the press because an important person has gotten in trouble and your name has been revealed as the person's attorney, or perhaps because you are leading an inquiry into matters of great national importance. What are your roles for doing media and how do you like to handle that? First of all, I respect the role of journalists and I always ask what their deadline is <laughs> and, and if I need to get back to them by a certain time. And I take seriously the public's right to know, but I also need to have established the ground rules with the client. Will someone else be speaking to the media? And of course, politicians have communications directors and communications staff. So that's not typically a concern when you're acting on behalf of a politician. But others, such as judges, will have to negotiate that. And very often, the fact is that part of your role as an advocate is to get your narrative out there, to explain that there is another side to the story, 
and to do that in a compelling way. And typically that's in a simple way, not a very legalistic way. As I like to say, try to be a Hemingway and not a Shakespeare about it. And so respect for the journalist, respect for the public's right to know, but knowing what the guardrails are, knowing how far you can go in the discussion. And of course, always respecting professional privilege and always respecting privacy interests that will inevitably arise. The press has evolved over the course of your legal career from its, what I'll say was its very prominent role in covering matters in the 70s and the 80s to now having to deal with the cacophony of noise from social media and from perhaps less legitimate um, institutions of the press. So have you changed how you respond to press inquiries, whether it's who you respond to or how you shape the responses you give on behalf of your clients? You raise an important question because a thought that goes through my mind from time to time is, am I dealing with a journalist at all? Is it a citizen journalist? And bloggers have a role to play too, don't get me wrong. But journalists are under the obligation to act in a responsible way. And I'm not persuaded that everyone whom you might consider to be a journalist at first blush would feel that they're bound by the tenets of responsible journalism. So you raise a very important point there, Dave. I do take that into account. And there are some individuals whom you respond to and others whom you don't respond to. And you just have to develop that judgment. And I will say that I have a favorite person whom I retain regularly to assist with media relations, someone who's a former justice reporter for the Globe and Mail, which is thought of as Canada's national newspaper. It certainly thinks of itself that way. And he has helped me navigate a number of cases over the years. And of course, he's assisting me currently on a couple of matters as well. That's great to hear, Brian. It's certainly the case that when I began practicing in the late 90s and early 2000s, you knew what the journalists knew what the rules were, lawyers knew what the rules were, and you could at least rely on the fact that we were operating from the same standards and playbook. There still needed to be credibility and trust, but at least there was a shared set of rules and values, and it's just so different, so different now. And with that in mind, do you, in your practice, go off the record, or is that something that you don't even consider because of the risks that are involved when you're talking to the press? If it's a journalist whom I know and trust, I will go off the record. I will provide information on background. I will be clear about whether attribution applies or doesn't apply, and I will be careful to take into account whether something's in the public record or not. Here, as I expect is the case in the United States, if it's part of the court record and not sealed, then it's it's within the public domain. I certainly have that in mind. And frankly, I've taken it into account and sometimes considering the scope of what I will make available in a court filing. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And for the benefit of our listeners who are less experienced dealing with the press than Brian, at a minimum... If you make the choice to go off the record, number one, make the reporter say it. Say, am I going, am I off the record? Yes, you're off the record. 
And even then, a good piece of advice I got early on was I should still assume I might end up on the record at some point in spite of my best efforts to avoid that. So I would just, I would encourage our listeners to, to keep that in mind if you're handling matters that involve press inquiries. I absolutely agree, Dave. And so Brian, with this really incredible career you've had handling all kinds of matters, I'm going to ask you two final questions as we come to the end of our time. So the first is, at this stage in your career, what's a particularly memorable engagement or piece of legal work that you've done that maybe hasn't gotten the attention of representing the prime minister or some of these other really national profile cases? What's a story of of something perhaps you're proud of where you felt like you got to do some really good legal work. And second, what's a piece of advice you'd give to our listeners, especially listeners who are earlier stages in their career and trying to navigate a career as a trial lawyer, which is not easy? What's a good story and what's some good advice you've got? <laughs> All right. Maybe I'll start with the good story. And it does relate to representing a judge. It did become public. But And it's a case about Thunder Bay, Dave. (laughs) And uh, a judge there had agreed to take a leave of absence with the permission of his chief justice. And it was approved by the minister of justice who would approve a second stage leave of absence. And nonetheless, the Canadian Judicial Council, which is the oversight body for the over 1,000 federally appointed judges in Canada, opened a file and concluded that he had transgressed the ethical principles for judges. And by placing himself in that position where it might be tedious, the council reasoned, and it could, in other ways, attract criticism, and it was incompatible with the duties of a judge currently in office. And there we were able to have the decision, which ultimately dismissed the complaint, but was so harshly critical of him, set aside. We did that through a finding that the entire process that the Canadian Judicial Council had employed was an abusive process. And for me, that was important because it was so easy to say, on one hand, what's the complaint about? The complaint was dismissed. What is our complaint about that is? Because the complaint, which was self-generated by the council itself, the judicial council, how can you really complain at the end of the day? The point is that the judge's reputation was important. And it has been said that a reprimanded judge is a wounded judge. They lose their moral authority. And for me, it's so important for us to remember that the powerless and the powerful all deserve due process. They all deserve share treatment. And it can be too easy for us to lose sight of that fact. So I'd say that's a lesson about a case that on one hand didn't seem to be important because the complaint was dismissed. But on the other hand, the judge's reputation was his most valuable asset. And I think the other question was advice that I'd give. The most empowering thing that was ever said to me when I went into private practice after career in public service that went on for 11 years was, was we'll see where the practice takes you. <laughs> and I'd encourage young lawyers to have an open mind about what they might do, where their practice might take them. I think many young lawyers come out of law school with an, a pretty firm idea about what they want to do. Be open to 
new challenges. Be open to opportunity and consider that there may be something that our profession, which I regard as a really wonderful profession, the things that our profession offers. And if you keep an open mind and you work hard and you know an opportunity when it arises, I think that a young lawyer will have a great career. Brian, that's wonderful. Thank you so much. I really want to thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule to join the college and trial tested and share your really incredible insights and experience as you practice law. So thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure, Dave. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Trial Tested, a podcast by the American College of Trial Lawyers. ACTL is dedicated to maintaining and improving the standards of trial practice, professionalism, ethics, and the administration of justice. Subscribe now to catch every inspiring episode.